Good evening. Is this my cheering section? <laughs> you know, if you sit that close, I embarrass you. Actually, Aspen, during Shine last year, they were told that the girls were going to go visit some of the older members. And Aspen said, are we going to get to go see Chris? <laughs> I do have a birthday coming up, Libby and I both. Of course, I'm much older. Does anybody know what today is? If you're keeping up, this is the Sunday that I started at Oldham Lane. Fourteen years ago, on this Sunday, I began my work here at Oldham Lane. And it has been uh, a joy for me. I, I sure hope it has been at least somewhat pleasurable for you. But I have enjoyed every second of it, and it just gets better year in and year out. Thank you for making it special. You ever, um, you ever use a word or a phrase in a context that is incorrect? And you don't realize it and you just keep using that word or phrase? I can remember when I first started preaching, I used the phrase in lieu of several times. And I would use it in the context of, say, like uh, football. And I would say, so in lieu of football, a touchdown is worth like seven points. And a nice little sweet lady came up to me after services one Sunday and she said, you know you're using that incorrectly. And I can't believe I told you that. It's very embarrassing, but... I was so thankful that she thought enough of me to come and tell me that I was doing it wrong and she did it discreetly so she didn't embarrass me. So in lieu of that, let's talk about some verses that are, uh, that are often misused and abused. And tonight we're looking at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. This is a passage that often gets plucked out of context and let's read it. Philippians 2 verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So this verse gets quoted a lot in a couple of different ways. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, you know, you're, you're just going to have to work out your salvation, and I'm just going to have to work out my salvation, and it's just personal for each one of us. And how we work it out is just up to us. Of course, there are others who would say that, Salvation is something that has to be worked on, that it is up to you to work at it, to prove yourself, to merit or earn this salvation. Now, obviously, both of these approaches are wrong. So what does it mean? Well, you've heard me say over and over again, if we're going to understand a passage, especially some of the more confusing ones or the more misused and abused ones, then we're going to have to consider the entire context. You take that verse and consider everything that is going on around it. And actually, we have a real key word here that helps us in understanding, at least in the beginning, what Philippians 2 and 12 means. It's the word therefore. It starts with the word therefore. And just for future reference, anytime you see the word therefore, it is connecting everything that has happened before that passage to everything that's about to be said. And so Paul gives us that key word. Look over with me at chapter 1 of Philippians. Let's read what's going on before. Verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So verses 21 through 24, probably pretty familiar with you. Uh, Paul is talking about how he would rather go on to his reward. He would rather just be at home with the Lord uh, because that was much better than the current condition that he was in. But he also knew that God had a different plan, and so therefore he was bought in. He was all in on that plan, and so he needed to do more laboring for the gospel here on earth. Paul is writing to these Philippians from prison. These are uh, part of the prison epistles, and he is hopeful that he will be released at some point from prison so that he can go and visit the Christians in Philippi. But until then, he urges them to, as I quote, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wants them to be unified, standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. They mustn't let persecution deter them, mustn't let anything get them off track. Paul is admonishing these Christians to keep pressing on, stay together, and endure. So, now go over to Philippians chapter 2, and you notice verses 1 and 2. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul continues the encouragement, telling the brothers to stay strong, stay on the same page. They would only be successful if they stayed together. The devil loves disharmony and disruption and disarray and disjointedness. And Paul says, feed off of one another, cling to one another. Then, for the next nine verses, Paul speaks of the need to put yourself second. Notice verses 3 and following. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul is urging the Philippians to be united, to be selflessly united. In essence, he's saying it's not about you. It's about the bigger mission. It's about the bigger picture. It's about the church. It's about the kingdom. And that is the context of Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and really 13. It's a major theme of Paul's. Over and over again, he hits on this, this theme of unity, being on the same page with each other and with God. Now again, verse 12 begins with that word, therefore. 
And what it means is that Paul is playing off of everything he just said, his previous thought, and he's, in, he's connecting this encouragement to stay strong and united and unselfish with what comes next. And what comes next is this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I've heard people say many times that you don't have to be a Greek scholar to study the Bible. And to that, I I totally agree. I would say, yes, you're right. However, I do think that knowing the original language at times can really help you discern a confusing passage. And certainly that is the case here. The Greek word for workout is a rather complicated word. I don't even know if I could pronounce it. Ketergatsomai. Does that sound good? You don't know any different. It's translated to mean to labor or toil in order to bring something to completion or fulfillment. And so what Paul is saying to the Philippian brethren is that they must strive or work together to bring about their salvation, to bring it to completeness or fulfillment. He's essentially just relating what he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's also very similar to what he stated in Ephesians 4, verse 1, when he wrote, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And notice again that theme of unity. Again, he hits on that over and over. So salvation is not worked out in our lives. It is is not being completed in us until we are of one mind and one spirit with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verses 14 and following. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So you have grumbling, disputing, infighting, backbiting, quarrels, dissension. These are all things that take away from unity. They distract from the mission. They they are opposed diametrically to what our Lord intended for the church to be. This is the Lord's church. It's not ours. You were purchased member by member by Jesus. God added you to his church. So how dare we treat this sacred institution in a way that is unloving, that is uncaring, that that is void of compassion? How dare we promote things that will not contribute to unity, but distract from the mission? God designed the church. He established it. Christ died for it. It's his bride. And we don't want to be guilty of causing her to have warts or scars. We don't want to mar her beautiness in any way. And you'll notice that Paul uses the phrase, your own. I think this is where sometimes people get off track. Work out your own salvation. This can be confusing, and it has led some to believe that each person just has to do their own thing when it comes to salvation. You just got to figure it out, right? Everybody's got to figure it out on their own, but this is plural here. It's not singular. He's not talking about you, James, or you, Tim. He's talking about us. This is an us and our thing, not a a me and I thing. You know, the verbs in this passage are plural. So Paul is speaking to a group, and he is telling them that they have to do this. 
as a group. Not on their own because he's, he's not there to guide them and assist them. He can't be there with them in person, so they're going to have to figure this out themselves. Occasionally, you will hear people use this verse. They'll say, well, you know, you just have to work out your own salvation, and I work out mine. Understand that such a sentiment stands in direct contrast to what the message Paul is trying to get across. We work out our own salvation collectively, and we do this by being of the same mind and of the same spirit. We do this by submitting to one another. We do this by being on the same page, reading from the same script. This is not something that can be done individually. The context of Paul's words here is the framework of the church. This is about us, not me. It's something that we do together collectively, that we spur one another on. We help one another as we strive to reach the promised land that is heaven. Now, you look at the phrase fear and trembling, what does that mean? Well, if we are to work out our our salvation with fear and trembling, it becomes easier to understand when we grasp the context. And the context, again, is unity. And we actually see Paul use similar language throughout his letters. For instance, you look at uh, Ephesians 5.21. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We fear God. We revere Christ. We stand in awe of our Lord and King. And because we love and respect him so much, we fear disappointing him. We desperately want to live out our calling as children of God. The last thing we want to do is let him down. And so we do what he commands us to do. We live as he would have us to live. And that includes submitting to one another, preferring one another, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep. In other words, a reverence for Christ looks like selfless unity in the church. And then I want you to notice verse 13. Paul writes, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working in us to bring about the transformation that we so desperately need. The Philippians were being transformed from the inside out, and so are we. And so... God is working to change our affections and really our complete manner of life. However, we are not passive in this work. We must actively imitate the humility of Jesus. We must strive to be more like him. We must live a surrendered life, and and we must work to be completed. And so someone might ask, well, are you saying that we've got to work in order to earn or merit our salvation? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. Well, While I'm not saying that we have to earn or merit, I am saying that we do have to work. I guess I am saying that. I think it's a yes and no thing. Do we have to work for our salvation? Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, no. When it comes to our salvation, God must intervene to save us because we are completely helpless. Like we've said before, this is not a good-bad thing. It's not like you're a bad person that needs to be made a good person. No, you're a dead person outside of Christ. You're a dead person that needs to be made alive, and the only person who can make you alive is God. He's the only one that majors in the resurrection business. He's cornered the market there. So he's the only one that can make you alive. So we are completely helpless, and we can do nothing to contribute other than just being dead. So we need someone to cure us of our deadness. However, Christianity is a grace-faith system, which means that God provides and man receives. If grace had not acted, man could not be saved. And if man does not act, he cannot be saved. So faith is the proper response to the grace of God. Grace describes God's part in salvation. Faith describes 
man's part. And the free gift of grace has been offered. That's Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We know that not everyone has been saved, though. Why? Well, because like Jeremiah said, there is a balm in Gilead, but not everyone accepts it. It's been offered, but you've got to receive it. If everybody was bestowed grace without them doing anything, that would be cheap grace. I have to respond. And the way that I respond is through faith. Salvation comes through faith, a faith that works. To earn something? No, because you're dead. You can't earn this. Rather, it's a response. God demands that our faith manifest itself in obedience. We know what that obedience looks like. Repentance is one way. Confessing, baptism, living faithfully. Folks, these are works of faith. In fact, faith is a work. If you don't believe me, look at John chapter 6, verses 27 through 29. Belief is a work. Faith is a work. A working faith is a living faith. Not a dead faith, but a living faith because it is a faith that does the will of God, not for the purpose of earning anything because you don't have any earning power as a dead person, but rather for the purpose of obeying the conditions of receiving the gift. It bothers me when I hear people comment on grace like it's some newfangled idea that it came into existence in the New Testament. You know, that, that God was wrathful and mean and he mellowed out when we got to the New Testament. Anyone who has ever been saved has been saved by grace. We cannot emphasize grace too much. Can I have too much grace? Anyone who has ever been saved has been saved by grace. In, in Genesis 6, 8, it shows us the grace of God afforded to Noah and his family. And it reads, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Abraham was not blessed because he deserved it. Jonah is a book of grace, if you've ever read Jonah. Hosea is the epitome of grace through this catastrophic life that he lived. God revealed his love, his mercy, and his grace. God did not begin with law-keeping and then suddenly get to grace. Anyone who has ever been saved has been saved by grace. But you'll notice that in all these examples I just gave to you, they all did something. They all did something. They all responded. Go back and read Hebrews 11 sometime in the Faith Hall of Fame. Every one of those people acted in faith. By faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, they did this. By faith, they did that. It's a response. It's doing something. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the patriarch and his family, Abraham, were saved, or, or Noah, were saved by preparing an ark in obedience to God's instruction. By faith, Noah obeyed the Lord and he was blessed. God extends grace, but we must be willing to receive the favor. The only obvious response to grace is faith. And faith in God cannot exist without obedience. When we cheapen grace, we cheapen the cross. When we portray grace as a gift void of any human obligation, then we cheapen the suffering that Christ endured on the behalf of all sinners. I can say this. Many, many years ago, I did a funeral, and it was really, really cold, and I didn't have a, 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 a big warm jacket. Uh, not that I was poor. I just didn't have one. I didn't have one that, was, you know, that you could wear with suits and things like that. And then I got a phone call like the next day from Dillard's that said, hey, we've got a gift for you here. You can come and pick it up. And I said, from who? And they said, we can't tell you. They told us not to tell. So if you're out there tonight, I've still got that coat. I went to Dillard's, and it was a coat. It was a trench coat that I still have, I still wear. I could have not gone and picked it up. But guess what? Wouldn't have gotten the coat. It was a free gift. I didn't have to pay anything. I had to go pick it up. So... 
the whole yes, no thing? Yeah, you do have to do something. But you're not doing it to earn anything because dead people have no earning power. All Christians sitting here this evening are the beneficiary of God's grace. In fact, all people are a beneficiary of God's grace in some shape or form, right? The fact that you were allowed to get up this morning and draw a breath is a, is a testament to God's grace. But all of you sitting here tonight are a beneficiary of God's grace. He extended his gift on the cross. You accepted, but that wasn't the end. Now comes the part about remaining faithful. And as I'm sure you've discovered, that's not always an easy thing to do. How much harder would it be if Paul's words were written to the individual instead of the church? You think about how much more difficult it would be if Paul was singling out the Christian instead of talking plurally. God never intended for us to practice Christianity on an island or in isolation. God never intended for us to be Lone Ranger Christians. Remaining faithful is hard, but we don't have to go it alone. Why was the church established? Now, there is, of course, more than one reason for that, but one of the major reasons is so that we could be unified, so that we could help one another in this journey of remaining faithful. So that like the Israelites, we would be, that we would be together, moving towards the promised land, helping one another. Hopefully we're not grumbling and complaining. Hopefully we're not always griping. Hopefully we're on the same page with one another and with God, moving in a godly direction. We exist to be unified, to promote the gospel, to live it out in our daily lives. We're there to pick one another up when we fall. We're there to... As we said earlier, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, stir one another up to love and good deeds. Our church is there to help us live faithfully, and our salvation is brought to fulfillment when we work with one another, when we cling to one another, when we encourage one another, when we feed off of one another, when we share with one another. If Paul's words were written to Abilinians instead of Philippians, they would read something like this. Work out your own salvation, Oldham Lane with fear and trembling. Paul is admonishing us to be united because we know that when we're united, we're more effective. One of the greatest evangelistic tools that any church has is their unity. The fact that they're on the same page, living out God's plan. Paul admonishes us to be united because unity is a sure sign of salvation. You work together to bring your salvation to fulfillment. Let God work in us and in this church to bring about his good pleasure so that we can present the church to him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's the context. And that's the application for us. Many of you know, hopefully all of you know what the Statue of Liberty is, right? Perhaps you've seen the Statue of Liberty in person. You know what the purpose of the Statue of Liberty was? There's two main reasons for the Statue of Liberty. Do you know what they are? One is to show the way, and the other is to offer hope to those in need. Is that not our purpose as well? To show the way and to offer hope to those in need? In Philippians 2, 14 through 18, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. We are to hold fast to the word of life We are to shine as lights in the world. We are to illuminate the gospel and offer hope to a dying and lost world. Oldham Lane is a statue of liberty. That's what we are. And 14 years ago, Jeff Jenkins, my friend and mentor, called me and he said, Chris, there's a great church in Abilene, Texas. Their preacher is leaving and they're looking for a young gentleman who can come in and preach for them. Would you be interested? And my answer was, where is Abilene, Texas? (laughs) This was in like September. I didn't do much with that. And in December, my wife was finishing up her graduate work. And she's on the Chronicle of Higher Education website. And she finds a job at Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas. And I said, that's funny because I had heard that there's a job in Abilene, Texas, a preaching job. And so... I got on the phone and I called Jimmy Jividen and we had a great conversation and he forwarded me to Lowell Maxey and we had a great conversation. Eventually I talked to Chris Atkins and within two weeks I was down here interviewing for the job. Chris picked me up in his old pickup and he said, let me get all this junk out of the way to let you sit down. And, and I thought, this is a guy I could work with, you know, he's got a junkie truck, that's perfect. I spend the weekend with these guys. Sorry. Doesn't get any better than this, folks. This is the best church. This is the best, the best opportunity I've ever had. And you are the best people that I could ever hope to work with. Let's not squander this. We're going to look back at this time and say, man, wasn't it great? Let's make the most of it, right? Let's blow and go. Let's grow and go. Let's do everything we can to make this the best that we can make it. Let's make an impact in our community. Let's make sure that we are going out and changing the world, impacting those around us. Jeff told me when I took this job, he said, Chris, Abilene needs a strong congregation to be a light in that part of the world, the United States. And he's constantly encouraged me to do some of the things that that he has done with the Jenkins Institute and things like that. Apply them here because he said, we need Oldham Lane to be a beacon in this community and and, in this part of the world. And that's what we're striving for. And I think we're we're doing some great things. I'm proud of what we're doing. I'm proud of you. And I'm so thankful to be a part of this wonderful congregation. Let's be a statue of liberty and remember that it's not me. It's not you. It's us. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day, for another opportunity to be together. May we take full advantage of these opportunities, Lord, to worship you, to give you all praise and glory and honor. And as we leave here, may we take advantage of every opportunity to be a light in the world around us. May we be a statue of liberty in this part of the world. May we offer hope May we help those who are in need, and may we always be united. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.
Jim's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you tonight, if we can pray with you. If you'd like to set up a Bible study, if you'd like to talk about next steps in faith, maybe you've done that and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need is, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.